Life Management Science Labs would like to acknowledge that we live and produce this podcast on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. We'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land of our listeners and our international colleagues. We'd like to thank and pay our respects to the elders, past, present, and emerging. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Doing Well, the Wellbeing Science Insights podcast produced by LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. We are champions of life management science, providing structured insights informed by science and inspired by practice on key aspects of conscious living. Each week, we bring you scientific and practical insights on each element with the expert knowledge of professionals in the field. I'm your host, Blue Ngo, coming to your ears from NARM, Melbourne, Australia. Let's learn together. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Doing Well. And we're here to talk about well-being every single week. Today, I am here with Sunny Weber to talk about how does the human-animal bond correlate with human-nature relationship. And I'm very, very interested in this topic and very excited to talk to Sunny about this for two reasons. Number one, I'm a cat mom, so I really love talking about this bond. Um, I love my for babies. And second of all, Sunny is the perfect expert to talk to us about this. Um, I got a little teary when I read the bio, uh, your bio, Sunny, because I just see how much you love and treasure um, this, this bond that we have with animals and how much you care about them. Um, so just for our audience to know, Sunny has over 30 years in animal welfare advocacy. She has experience in rescue, fostering, medical care service and therapy dog evaluation and training, shelter and sanctuary work and specializes in the rehabilitation of fearful animals. Sunny has rehabilitated then rehomed hundreds of dogs, cats, and horses. And there's so much more to what she does. And I'm going to throw over to Sunny to talk about um, her expertise and her journey right now. Sunny, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. It's been a very hectic afternoon for you sorting out how we're going to do this virtually. So we really appreciate you being here, your patience. And I'm also very interested to know more about your journey, you know, how you got here, why you did the work that you've been doing. You chose the path and also there might be other things that we didn't get to cover when we read out that bio so here's your chance please introduce yourself hi um i'm ashley in greenwood village colorado united states so we are quite a ways away we are entering into our evening and you are entering into your day which is always yeah. interesting but i think you're also a day ahead of us so that's even more interesting you'll have to tell me how tomorrow is um, anyway, I started working with animals as far back as I can remember as a kid. I was always attracted to animals. I wanted to become a veterinarian. And when I was going to school, they were not allowing women into veterinary school un except under very exclusive um, qualifications, which I did not have. Um, ironically enough, um, when I turned 50, I had a car accident and I sustained a pretty substantial head injury. Um, I lost my entire personality. I was in the middle of writing a children's book about a dog and I had to stop because I could not read. I couldn't spell. I couldn't punctuate. And my personality completely changed. I'd always been a very independent, um, adventurous woman. And all of a sudden I became afraid of everything. And through the years, the five years of therapies, both drug and, and physical therapy and, and psychological therapy, I studied the brain and I studied how to get mine back. And as I healed and as I learned, I suddenly understood fearful 
animals. Although I'd always worked with a lot of animals, I didn't do it professionally. Um, and then once I got into the profession, I was working with highly trained dogs. I trained dogs. And then I suddenly couldn't. When I had the car accident, I was actually training a service dog for a quadriplegic who lived in another state. And fortunately, she was pretty much finished. So I was able to finish her off and get her back to him. And then I thought, now what? I can't problem solve. And so I began to volunteer after losing my own two dogs, three weeks apart. I had all that nursing time free. And I went to the local shelter, which we're very fortunate here in Denver to have a gigantic, very modern shelter. And I began to volunteer in all kinds of different departments. Gradually, I, I shifted my focus onto fostering. And I found that I had a natural ability to understand the innate and primitive fear in dogs that were under-socialized, genetically misbred, so that they had a lot of natural fears. Um, I, had, I had a lot of affinity with the dogs that had been mistreated. Um, so I found that fear is nature and nurture. And I began to work with a lot of dogs that no one else could work with. They were euthanizing them. And so I was able to save all the dogs I worked with. We got them all rehomed. I worked with the adopters and every one of those dogs stayed in their homes. And that really turned the light bulb on for me. And so I wrote my first book, Beyond Flight or Flight, A Guide to Working with Fearful Dogs. And it continues to be a bestseller all around the world, particularly with people who work with shelters, rescues, fostering, and particularly people who are working and trying to rehabilitate um, puppy mill dogs. I've worked with fearful horses. Um, and of course I foster cats and cats are a quirky little creature all into themselves. And so you have to really kind of understand um, what their separate needs are. For many, many years, they were treated as just little dogs and they are a completely separate species. So it's been a really, a uh, fun and interesting um, time uh, all my life uh, being limited by uh, my age, my sex, um, you know, the limitations that society puts on women. Um, and then to finally have those doors start to open and now to be in a position of being the so-called wise one. And so I've written five books on dogs. Um, I've worked politically for animal welfare legislation in our state legislature. Uh, I'm currently the president of an educational nonprofit for animals, and we, we network with all the other animal rescue groups in the state. So it's it's been a fascinating time, a fascinating career. And the best thing about it is that I feel like I have something to give and it's needed. Yeah, what a beautiful story. I mean, the, the part where you had the accident was definitely um, a really sad part of that story. And it was probably unfortunate to a lot of people, but it seemed like you came out of it so much stronger and you do wonderful work now because you can understand um, different aspects of that, you know, human animal bond. Um, right. And I feel like that's the beauty of this conversation. We're going to go to, you know, these different places that we probably don't talk to about very often. And I think when it comes to fearful animals, um, it is a very important thing to notice. And a lot of people just dismiss that. 
Um, I know a lot of my friends who get, you know, rescue dogs or they foster rescue dogs. And um, it's just kind of like this whole new different world where you learn unconditional love, you learn how to heal them and and heal yourself in the process. And I feel like that is um, something we can totally explore in a little bit. Uh, So I'm keen to find out more. Um, And I I know you have wonderful insights you're going to share with us. So before we do that, we have this fun section we called Have You Met Sunny, where we get your recommendations when it comes to some of the things that we would like to know about because this show is all about learning um, these combined, uh, the serious ones and the fun ones as well. So the first thing that we always ask our guest is a book. What is a book that you would recommend? You know, I am a voracious reader and I love to read about human or human slash animal behavior and how they combine. So one of the favorite books that I just finished um, isn't as much about animals, although they do come into it briefly. It's a a book called The Better Angels of Our Nature. It's by Steven Pinker. And it's about the evolution of the human species because we are animals. Um, And as we evolved away from the tribal and hierarchical brutality and violence into the development of empathy and justice systems, And during that period of time, we suddenly began to start up and be aware of the human rights movements, the child rights movements with child labor laws, and of course, the animal rights movements. All those came about at approximately the same time around the turn of the last century. And this book gave me such hope because you see so much violence and cruelty in the world today that this book really had the statistical evidence of going back through the millennia to the beginning of humankind and how we evolved as a species. So The Better Angels of Our Nature by Steven Pinker. Yeah, what a beautiful recommendation. Thank you. And how about a movie that you would recommend? Well, this this movie, uh, I love humor. I don't like to be depressed. I go to movies to unwind. Um, But this movie is a Netflix uh, produced movie. So you can only find it on Netflix. It's called Don't Look Up. I don't know if you've ever heard of it before, but it is a blockbuster. And it tells the story of two astronomers attempting to warn humanity about an approaching comet that will destroy human civilization and the entire planet. Now, as there's trying to get the word out the um the impact event which is the asteroid striking the earth they are trying to alert all the different peoples on the world um and different governments etc and it's an allegory for climate change which is the way it was originally written although it can also apply itself to a lot of political situations as well that we're in that are Uh, not quite as large a picture as climate change, but the author originally wrote the story uh, as an allegory about climate change and how everyone should be so alarmed it was happening and people are sticking their head in the sand, so to speak. Um, It is a very supreme example of satire. There are, it's, it's difficult to watch in a lot of ways, but it's also got some extremely hilarious points to it. Um, They are trying to alert the governments, the political candidates, celebrities, 
and the media who remain indifferent to what's going on. They're all focused on their own little worlds of, you know, what is it is going to make me money? Um, is this going to um, make me look good? Uh, it's a lot of small pictures packaged into one great big picture that if we don't do something, it's not going to matter. You know, it's not going to matter how much money you have or, you know, how people see you because you're not going to be here. So that was a fabulous, fabulous movie. And I've seen it three times and I still, I still see new things every time I watch it. Wow, that's super cool. I mean, I've seen this movie on Netflix uh, in my recommendations, but I just never brought myself to watch it. Now I have to. Thank you. Yes, you do. You have to watch it. <laughs> Absolutely, I will. That sounds great. All right. So you're on a podcast now. This is a must ask. Which podcast would you recommend? Again, back to Steven Pinker, uh, The Life of Mind. He has an extraordinarily, it's intellectual, but the way he presents it, it's very digestible for the average brain like mine. Um, and it's about the evolution of the human species and how it's been affected through millennia by societies, religion, government, and then the development of rule of law, um, educational consequences, socioeconomic limitations, and, and race relations. Um, he has a variety of podcasts that touch on all these subjects. Uh, the man's mind is so fascinating to me. I, I just don't know how all, all those brains can be in one head. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a really good one. And next question is about your famous role model, or if not famous, then who is your personal role model? Uh, my role model my entire life has been one woman, and that is Gloria Steinem. Uh, she is a feminist from the 60s and 70s. Um, she's in her 80s now, and she's still making inroads, fighting for climate change and women's rights all over the world. Um, I've had the privilege of meeting her three times and that's only because I like to um, crash uh, press parties. <laughs> and I used to work in journalism, so I had a press pass. I would try to sneak in first, and then if I got caught, I'd pull out a press pass. But um, <laughs> right. <laughs> I, I, I met her three times, and she gave me very excellent advice the very first time I met her. And by the time I met her for the third time, I said, I followed that advice she gave me 20 years ago. And she said, oh, what did I tell you? And so I told her, and it was about, you know, reaching back for the women behind you to pull them up the ladder. And because I've been self-employed my whole life, and I've always employed women and trained women and tried to help them not only break glass ceilings, but also to be self-employed when they had to be and, and to make their own way in the world and not to be dependent on anyone else but themselves. And and she's, she's very quiet. She's, a, you know, you'd think that as a feminist, she'd be you know, screaming and pounding desks. And she's very petite. Um, her wrists have to be about two inches round. And she's very beautiful in nature and looks and in carriage. Um, she's a very classy woman and she's very quiet, uh, very intellectual, but she has a killer sense of humor. I actually got to meet her one and only husband. Uh, and I told him, she, he was with her on a tour. And after we had had a little chat, chance to chat and she signed one of her books for me, uh, the crowd whooshed her into this reception area. And, and I was left behind because I saw her husband standing there. And, and I went up to him and I said, um, 
you know, I can't find anything about you on, on the internet. And he goes, me, why are you looking up me? And I said, because you remind me of Linda McCartney, you know, Paul McCartney, the Beatle, his, his wife, Linda, they were still married then she hadn't passed yet. And he said, Linda McCartney, why? And I said, because she caught and kept the cutest Beatle and you caught and kept Gloria Steinem. You must be a hell of a man. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> he just busted up laughing. But she's written so many phenomenal books and they're about self-confidence and how democracy starts in the home. If you don't have democracy in a home, you're not going to have it in a community or a state or a nation or a world. Um, and equality in life is is for everyone, regardless of social spectrums and politics. Now, her husband, David Bale, was an animal rights advocate, and that's how they met. She spoke to an animal rights group that he was the president of, and he was explaining to me this long-distance romance that they had. He was in California and Los Angeles. She was in New York, and he goes, I had to marry her because I couldn't afford the phone calls. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. So I, I, he and I hit it off really well because we had animal rights and animal um, uh, advocacy in common. And uh, unfortunately, he died of a brain tumor just three years into their marriage. Oh, that's so sad. Yeah. But beautiful as well. Thank you for sharing that. It's, I'm letting it sink in. That's a, that's a lot to process because, uh, yeah, that, that sounds wonderful and sort of tragic towards the end, but um, beautiful that it happened. Yeah, very, very wonderful that she found a man that got her, you know, and Absolutely. he, he to let her have the spotlight. When she went into that reception, he said, look at her. She still thinks of herself as trailer trash, but look at her. He was so proud. That's adorable. Wonderful. And final question on this part. What is a course you've completed that you would like to talk about? I recently completed a course, a certificate program in nonprofit management, because I was recently asked to take over a, a, a startup nonprofit educational animal humane education program. It's called Colorado uh, Animal Protectors. And um, I have had such a ball trying to get this nonprofit off the ground because I've started many for-profit businesses and I love the startup and and all the problem solving and the structural building of, of a successful business. But I'll tell you, nonprofit is way different and you have a lot more regulations, you have a lot more um, responsibility for other people's money. Um, in private business, if you make a mistake, it's your money you lose. If you make a mistake in nonprofit management, you lose a lot of other people's money. Um, and you don't accomplish your mission. And so it's it's a real passion for me. And I thought, okay, I've got the business end of it. Let's figure out the nonprofit end of it and how to manage volunteers and, and board members and donors and, and people who come and volunteer at events. And, how to to widen your umbrella to encompass all these different personalities who have one passion, which is animals. 
That sounds wonderful. And I just, I love that you're still learning and picking up new things and you're so excited about it to talk about it. You know, I, th I think it's such a good reminder that we should never stop learning. There are always new things to learn. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. So now let's get into the main part of this conversation where we're going to talk about this special human animal bond. And um, we touched on this a little bit earlier, but it's also about the human nature relationship, which is probably a new thing for a lot of people, um, especially to those that don't get exposed to a lot of animals. They don't have pets or the concept of having a pet is weird to them, like myself a few years ago. Um, so I think this conversation will be very enlightening to both people that are used to having animals around and people who are super new to this and they have no idea what they're in for. So first of all, before we get into that, uh, this show is about well-being. So let's start with well-being. Sunny, what does well-being mean to you? My own definition of well-being means a feeling of personal balance and harmony, hence my overall happiness in life. Well-being for me is, number one, contentment in my current state of being. Number two, a sense of control over my life's journey. Three, feeling fulfillment when looking into my past, continuing to have the energy and drive to accomplish contributory projects in my future. And number four, existing in an environment that fulfills my need for space, peace, and connection to the natural world I live in. That's a wonderful definition. And um, I think it's beautiful that each guest has a very different definition when it comes to their well-being. And uh, I, I say this all the time, their definition speaks a lot about them. Um, and it's so clear that you, you know, you're a woman of service. You're talking about all these different aspects, not just for yourself, but also uh, for others. And I think uh, that shows already through your work and through what you just shared earlier. And now it's just a reaffirmation that it is who you are. And when it comes to well-being, we also notice that there would be several misconceptions that people encounter. Now, this is based on their background, a lot of different factors and uh, their upbringing, um, their cultural differences, whether who they are at their core. And this means that it depends on the definition. You'll notice the different misconceptions. So based on your own definition, what are some of the misconceptions about well-being that you've noticed in others? I feel many people fall short in their sense of well-being when they base the criteria for it on superficial, selfish, and short-sighted goals. They continually feel anger and frustration when they inevitably come up short. Misconceptions occur when people define well-being by basing it on unnecessary but needy power over others, greed for overabundance of material wealth and possessions, an arrogant sense of superiority, personal entitlement to use other humans, animals, nature, or the environment for their own focuses and self-aggrandizement, inability to comprehend life through altruistic, compassionate awareness, and never connecting the fact that they and everything everywhere are just cogs in a gigantic cosmic wheel. And an overabundance of self-absorption will bring isolation, discontentment, and disappointment regardless of the financial or material success one achieves. Yeah, absolutely. I think you touched on quite a few big topics right there, um, because I think a lot of the times our guests, our other guests have mentioned that when it's external, um, it's not the true sense of well-being because it needs to come from within and all right. these external factors can change, they can shift, uh, but our well-being should always be within ourselves and we always can find it 
in here. And Correct. in fact, earlier today, we, I had another conversation with another guest and uh, she was talking about a very similar thing as well. Um, so th- those are some very good points. And I think one of the things about internal factors when it comes to well-being is the bond we have with others. So going back to the topic today, we're talking about the human animals bond, right? And to me, I don't know about you, um, I'm sure it might be something similar or you, you might find some differences. Uh, but to me, ever since I started having pets, I have this um, like this, this sense of well-being that's elevated. And it's like this unconditional love that I didn't understand before. Um, and I know a lot of people are saying, Oh, you know, like some of my friends are kind of saying, oh, you know, you're a cat mom. It's like you're a mom. And I'm like, well, I know that I'm not a mom mom because, you know, it's very different to raise a human and that bond would be completely different. And I respect that. But I also feel this this connection that's completely different from all the other kinds of connections that I've had in my life. And it's so important to me. And it's, it's something that keeps me grounded. You know, like I lost one of my cats last year and it completely devastated me. And, um, you know, after that, I just realized, you know, how precious they are and how much, how much time we actually have with them. And sometimes when I'm caught up in my busy day to day, I just forget to pet them as much as they would like to be petted or, you know, like I don't pay attention as much to their diet, you know, what they're doing. Um, I don't play with them as much. And I, I feel like that impacts my well-being or it can show me how much my well-being is impacted as well. And so that is really important for us to start by defining this bond. And I know not everyone has pets, uh, but I think this conversation might help them to understand and imagine what it's like to have this bond with animals um, or if they live in areas where they they can get, you know, um, easy access to animals around them and have that bond, I think this would also apply. Uh, So the question here would be, how important do you think the emotional bonding between humans and animals to our well-being? Well, I think it depends on the person. Um, Humans are biologically large-brained social animals and need connection to others to feel fulfilled. All human babies are helpless and born with an innate need for nurturing by a primary caregiver. As toddlers reach a cognitive need for making contacts outside the immediate mother-father cocoon, they turn to other people, especially other toddlers, and also to animals in nature. Teenage humans attach emotionally more to their peers and pets than parents, and in their first, it's in their first steps towards intellectual self-awareness and independence. Young adults have to take that independence and separate from their family core and attach to outsiders such as their own mates, friends, business, and social connections. They often seek the acceptance of a pet to aid in those transitions, as well as practice caring for another dependent being. Eventually, more altruistic needs eventually surface in the adult as they develop a larger scale society-focused mentality which evolves into contributory involvements. This is when their time and money benefits charity work, often within the pet and nature nonprofit activity. Ideally, all along the maturity spectrum of humans, close bonds with pets can enlarge the scope of our vision of our own world. Caring for another, particularly one who is dependent, matures and develops the human psyche to awaken to kindness, emotional attachment, respect and compassion, for those outside the narrow bonds of humanity and encompasses non-humans and nature. Large brain social connectivity is shared by people, dogs, horses, elephants, dolphins, and many other species, 
We are, after all, just another species of animal. If left alone in the right environment, I feel all humans would benefit from animal companions. However, the human species has completely altered the environments we choose to live in. Many, many of us never come in contact with other species. Therefore, we never experience the human-animal bond. Those who do not may even go so far as to alienate their own offspring by projecting their own ignorance and inciting irrational and uneducated prejudices about animals. Children, after all, must be taught to fear, to be cruel, and to hate. In my book, City Dog Walking, Safety and Etiquette, I cite the history of the human-dog bond through millennia. The changes in human lifestyles have broken many of the bonds we initially had with companion animals, such as the hunter-gatherer societies morphed into agricultural settlements, then moved into industrial cities and clusters of high-density living. With the advent of the age of information, through remote working, many of us have returned to the isolation of farm life, but with the, within the concrete jungles of cities. Pets answer our needs for companionship in more and more instances. Conversely, there was a huge uptick in animal adoptions during the COVID lockdown. Now that people are migrating back to human-to-human -human socialization through returned offices and social life, those newly acquired pets are being given up in record numbers and the shelter capacities all around the United States for sure um, have, have really been overwhelmed. People took in homeless animals while it suited their own needs. Now those pets are homeless once again because of the lack of real human animal bond with their adopters. Our own well-being should exist alongside the conscious awareness a well-being of the animals we share our world with. We have dragged animals, especially our pets, into highly unnatural lifestyles for them as well as for us. Our acceptance and rejection of bewildered pets reflects the fickleness of human commitment all too often. And yet, fortunately, in, in innumerable cases, the original bonds do endure. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, I'm just processing uh, the information. That's that's quite a bit of information to digest because you mentioned, uh, first of all, the bond that we have with uh, animals and how, you know, we no longer have access to these animals as much because of the way that our lives are structured. Because I remember there was a time that I would see animals on the street in the city where I'm from. It, it's a capital city of Vietnam and it's a pretty big city now. Uh, but I used to see animals on the street quite a bit. Now, you, don't, you barely see any, even dogs. Very rarely would you cite them. And so I, I'm kind of thinking about that. And then you talk about COVID and the fact that a lot of them are abandoned. And I was kind of like, that is true. It's been an issue for quite a while now. And um, I think it's a very one-sided relationship. When, when we need them, we get them. We build a bond with them. And, and they also build a bond with us. And then when we don't need them anymore, we abandon them. That is super sad and to me i can never do that personally um, and and so i think to our well-being when you said it needs to exist alongside the well-being of, of these animals i completely agree um, but i guess a lot of people just overlook it because right. um yeah they get busy they get caught up in life or uh, they made the decision because out of loneliness not because of the love for animal not because of building the bond and i guess that's where things went wrong um and speaking of pets, you know, we, we talk about pets quite earlier when I shared my story and you mentioned this as well. So 
while we have people that abandon the pets that they got during COVID, we have people that are super attached to their pets. That was me in the first year of having cats. Um, so the question would be, can we be too attached to our pets? And what would be this, this impact of over-attachment if that's such a thing? It is. And there can be some very um, strange uh, illustrations of that. Over-attachment is an anomaly and it's often seen in pet hoarding cases. In such instances, the human suffers from a form of obsessive compulsive disorder, or OCD. This type of OCD leads a human to feel such an over-identification and obsession with their animals that they see a need of saving. They feel they alone can provide the best care and do not seek professional scientific veterinary care for their victims. They gather more animals than they can successfully or humanely care for. They become blind to the consequences of overcrowding, disease, starvation, lack of hygiene for themselves as well as the animals, and even death. Often, hoarding situations, when raided, result in dead animals decomposing and pest-ridden. It's not uncommon for the human in the case to be oblivious to such tragedy. Mm, yeah, that sounds really sad, actually, because I do know that um, a few people take in a lot of pets because they truly genuinely care about uh -huh. these pets. Um, you know, for example, in the case of um, a person that I uh, used to uh, talk to quite a bit when I first got cats, she rescues a bunch of cats here in Melbourne. And, um, you know, she would share that on social and, you know, she would rehome them um, whenever possible. And she has a lot of cats herself and the love is just unconditional i just really really admire that um, but on the other hand i also know people that have a lot of pets and they just don't care about them Very so good. yeah it's it's kind of like these this spectrum of two extremes um and i i guess too being too attached might be a thing in the, the, the hoarding definition that was interesting but what I have found is um, when I talk to people who own um, a lot of pets or, you know, who actually, you know, really genuinely love their pets. And I'm also one of those people trying to love my pets more, you know, trying to do the right thing. I feel like once I started that journey, I felt like a better person. And, you know, like I felt like I'm more patient, I'm more caring. I clean more often as well, you know, like because, you know, there are cats around. So I clean my apartment more often. I really love that. Um, so I feel like it's a, it's also part of your development, right? Like, I, I mean, I don't know about um, having both children and pets because a lot of my friends do that at the same time or they have pets and then they have children. So it's kind of like this learning curve would be completely different. So I'm, I'm speaking here only on the front of having just pets. Um, so when I started having pets, I noticed all of these positive things that started to develop within me. Um, so I, I, I think there must be something here. And I wonder from your work, uh, do you notice if there'd be any sort of um, relationship between this human in uh, human animal interaction in the character development of a, of a person, of humans? Absolutely. Um, for example, the five main character traits that are commonly labeled in psychological tests are openness, which is imagination, feelings, actions, ideas, values, adventurousness, things like that. Conscientiousness, order, self-discipline, confidence, achieving, striving, etc. Extroversion, warmth, friendliness, assertiveness, outward focused activity, and positive emotions. Agreeableness, trust, compliance, modesty, 
altruism, sympathy, cooperation, neuroticism, hostility, depression, impulsiveness, anger, vulnerability, and self-consciousness. Socially approved character traits are admirable, but sometimes difficult to parse out of a person without intimate knowledge of that person. Even so, you can think you know a person well, when in fact, even with years of relationship, the mystery of the other's psyche can still shock. For example, we, have, we all have experience with our own emotional attachment to a person who has at some point betrayed us in a surprising and distressingly unforeseen way. Personally, I look for positive character traits on the simplest of levels. How does the person I'm interacting with treat animals? Compassion, kindness, and willingness to put the other to the friend of concern tells me whether the person I'm dealing with is going to be my kind of human. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's it shows so easily when you're on the street and you see a you see a group of people and then you see a dog and then you see how they interact with the dog. You know, I mean, a lot of people have trauma, um, you know, because of their childhood. Something might have happened, so they dodge. And that's totally normal. But then you also see people that just go and pet the dog and, you know, have this really special bond. And you also see the reaction of the owner as well. Some of them are very happy for their uh, dogs to be petted. And then the others might just not be super duper happy. And I noticed these little like micro movements in their faces. And I'm like, that's a really, really nice person. Oh, that person might not be so nice. You know, like I just noticed little things, um, it's just really similar to what you just said. I found that to be very interesting. Um, but I think another aspect of this as well is we mentioned this briefly before, you know, during COVID people get pets and then they abandon the pets. Um, and a lot of uh, them do that out of loneliness. But at the same time, we also have people that are lonely and they know that they want companion and they truly invest in these relationships. So that there are multiple ways this can play out. Um, and I wonder what would be some of the ways that this human animal relationship and th this bond correlate with loneliness. Um, if you think about loneliness today, what what is that typical person how do they feel loneliness what causes loneliness now what i found is there's an overarching search for connections that aren't based on conditional judgment such as appearance race religion politics lifestyle wealth and all the qualifications humans use as criteria for attachment to their own kind in my book, Beyond Flight or Flight, A Compassionate Guide for Working with Fearful Dogs, I concentrate on the major emotion that causes dogs to be rejected, fear. However, I also discuss the other five, five primary emotions that Charles Darwin, the explorer, wildlife illustrator, and creator of the theory of evolution defined. He said, quote, higher-brained animals are those that have incipient capacity for empathy, logic, language, and magnanimity, unquote. The six primary emotions he defined were happiness, surprise, sadness, anger, fear, disgust. In addition, complex secondary emotions such as empathy, altruism, and devotion are currently being studied and acknowledged in many species besides humans. Happiness, surprise, sadness, anger, disgust, and fear. That sounds simple, doesn't it? Besides humanoids, higher apes and animals, 
higher apes than humans, I mean. Um, animals do not possess the negative, tangled, overwrought emotions humans have. They do not operate with the ulterior motives that are based in the power plays common in human relationships. We do see that in chimpanzees and some of the higher apes, however. But the animals we mostly come in contact with do not operate on those levels. Nor are they able to dwell on past slights and anticipated punishments coming in the future. Commonly, pets live in the moment, and they're simply happy or unhappy with their lot in life. They are not philosophical, judgmental, or swayed by esoteric, religious, superstitious, or political theorems. Manipulative behaviors, such as revenge, spitefulness, insincerity, and dishonest motives, to obtain a resource are ape and human-based only. So when a person feels maligned, lonely, rejected, persecuted, hurt, or unable to trust, they can find simple and sincere acceptance from a pet. Consequently, when a bond develops between a human and a pet, it is most often a calming result of attachment without judgment. Humans can find acceptance, companionship, and connection with an animal and skip the conflicts found in the constant juggling of power in a person-to-person -person relationship. And I have to agree with Dr. Franz D. Wall, primatologist and professor of psychology at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia, in the, here in the United States. And he wrote, quote, this is why it is so refreshing to work with chimpanzees. They are the honest politicians we all long for, unquote. Oh, wow. That's so interesting. <laughs> it's just, you know, one take on loneliness and you expanded it to all kinds of different emotions and how it kind of related to one another. Probably have to listen to that part again because I'm still processing the information. That was very interesting. Uh, but the final question that we have in this part is a very big question. It is the topic of the day. We were, we were talking about this earlier and we were saying, on the one hand, we have the human-animal bond. On the other hand, we have the human-nature relationship. And... I think from my perspective, I don't know much about this area. I don't do research in it. But what I have noticed is you basically manifest the same kind of reaction, I would say, like, especially for me, when I notice how I'm treating my cats, it'd be like how I'm treating my friends. Sometimes if I'm neglecting them, I'm neglecting my friends. And if I'm paying attention to all of them, I know that I'm tuning into my life. So it's kind of like this relationship that I can correlate, I can kind of see the difference, but then sometimes uh, I would be uh, a little bit out of sync with everything and I would, you know, pay more attention to ca to my cats and to my friends um, and vice versa. So it's like a, a constant, like, I would say internal battle that I've just been noticing. Uh, I don't know why. I think it has to do with a lot of different aspects of well-being and I need to dig deeper to understand why. But I wonder from, from your work, how does the human-animal bond relate with the human-nature relationship, which is the key question of the day? Okay, that's a biggie. It's <laughs> I a very big one. Quite a bit, because I wasn't quite sure what, what you were after, but, I, I, but it, it became more clear the more I thought about it. Um, there's a fascinating book that I absolutely love. I've kept it for decades. It's by British anthropologist Desmond Morris. He's written many, many books on animal behavior, and he examines the signs in the human zoo. He examines the signs of overcrowding stress due to overpopulation in an environment. 
He cites studies concerning multiple species as well as humans. The main difference, he explains, is that domestic or wild animals are most often crowded due to humans forcing them to be, such as in zoos and shelters, while humans choose to overcrowd themselves, such as in cities. Overcrowding stresses produce many negative emotions and consequently destructive behaviors. Common results in human overcrowding are violence, crime, more intense development of the us versus them culture wars, and the most destructive of hierarchical power mongering, the ever increasing competition for resources that are valued by any given society. Animals react to overcrowding stresses in less vengeful ways, most often by just trying to escape what makes them uncomfortable. Although the higher apes will wage wars on each other like humans do, Few other species, particularly domesticated animals, will organize themselves for violent insurrections against the humans that imprison them. Humans are a species of mammalian animals. We are just one of billions of creatures and things that make up the planet Earth. Each living creature, fauna, resides in a compatible habitat or should be able to. Things, flora, make up those habitats. We are all unique to this planet and exist nowhere else in the galaxy. Humans in their own environments must also coexist with other creatures and the Earth's environmental stratum. Humans are the only species of earthly creature that has a choice on how they cohabit and control their environments. They can either nurture or destroy their own home space or that of other humans or animals. They can and have made gigantic debacles of destruction all around the globe. When a person opens their mind and heart to a pet companion, often they become more aware of the environment that pet needs, which enhances that person's awareness of the world outside themselves. Caring for an animal and therefore creating an emotional and physical bond opens the human to more connection to the wider world. For example, a person who is attached to a dog may purchase a house with a yard. Within the yard, there may be birds, reptiles, mammals, insects, and flora. The person becomes part of that habitat because of their wish to accommodate their dog's needs. Or a person takes an interest in exotic fish. That person then must learn about water, chemicals, oxygen, plants, and all the natural habitat requirements to maintain a healthy aquatic environment. Or a person partners with a horse. The horse needs a safe, confined area in which to live which usually consists of a sizable patch of land. On that land will be the same species of life as in the dog's backyard, with the addition of non-domesticated animals who may pass through or reside near the horse. The human is exposed to what the horse is, space, creatures, and natural flora. By attaching oneself to an animal species, other than our own humankind, people are automatically exposed to and exist within other habitat environments. This will hopefully lead to an increased awareness and advocacy for a wider vicinity of flora and fauna. Because all animals remain cognitively and behaviorally part of nature, they can help humans return to the natural world they have chosen to leave or never knew. Despite congregating in stark urban habitats we accept, we must realize high-density cities are not traditional habitats of harmony. Many studies have shown increased senses of well-being that humans will migrate to when given chances of access. More and more urban areas are constructing parks, 
parks, water features, indigenous uh, plant gardens, and natural spaces in their city planning. Planned natural environments are increasingly popular in newly developed areas around the human settled world. On a larger scale, entire nations have set large swaths of land aside for national, regional, and local parks and recreation areas. Formerly neglected, polluted, or destroyed areas are being reclaimed by governments for emotional, physical, and mental benefits of their citizens. Close bonds with animals have led people back to natural environments where the primitive bonding instincts of humans can surface. The preponderance of advocative environmental groups all around the world in recent decades has shown that people want to save the precious habitats and environments that all our partners in existence share. The human-animal bond is responsible for awakening human beings to the fragility, beauty, and nourishing effects of returning to our planet the rights and care that we have for so many years taken for granted and taken away. Yeah, that's a very big one, right? That you said it's a very big question. I couldn't agree more because right. I think I don't really pay much attention to the environment that I'm in most of the time. And then, you know, s since having pets and started to think about having pets, um, I started to notice, okay, what, what can I do in this environment? Because, you know, it's a, it's an apartment that I have, like, I'm going to have cats, how are they going to, you know, like have the interaction they need. Um, and obviously nature is such a big part of um, animals' lives. And um, I know that most cats are supposed to be domestic anyway. Not all of them are outdoor cats. Um, my cats are the same, but I feel like sometimes I still want to let them you know get out and see the world because you know like the, the their whole world is just my apartment so I sometimes take them out into nature and then I feel like that's when I feel the bond like the human nature bond I'm like oh this is actually quite nice because I'm here I'm bringing my cat out and really need to pay attention to everything um, and just really be mindful of the, the surroundings. And, you know, like there would be other dogs and my scare the cats or the cats might scare the dogs. Um, and I don't know what I'm going to do in the future in terms of choosing the living environment. But that is a good point because some people might choose, you know, a, a place that's more spacious so they can have space for their pets. Like you said, you know, like uh, dog owners will have backyards for them. And I, I think that's a that's a really good point because sometimes we choose our living environment when we're alone very differently for, from when we're actually with pets. Um, yeah. And yeah, and in the bigger picture, this talks a lot about nature because if this is what we're doing with our pets, then what, what can we do beyond that? Because when we're not just living in our little bubble. You know, if, if we're living with pets, we, we, could, we should know the animals and their animals out there as well. And we're just slowly taking their homes. I know it's a very big issue. It's not easy to be addressed because it's easier said than done. It's like, oh yeah, let's protect the environment. Um, but I think it's, it starts with awareness. Mm -hmm. You know, it starts with having pets. And I know that a lot of my friends, when they have dogs, they go and explore with their dogs and they start to pay attention more to nature, um, you know, places that are safe for the pets and, you know, just get that connection. Um, so I think it's, a good start and i think later today i'm going to have another conversation about pro-environmental behavior which is going to be interesting uh, because this conversation that we just had is kind of opening doors for a lot more discussions um we tend to not pay attention to nature and then, at least for me 
that's what I've noticed uh, living in the city arrangement here in Melbourne. Um, I do get exposed to a lot of nature, but oftentimes I'm busy and I just go out and get my coffee and I come back and I just don't really pay attention. Uh, so yeah, the, the pets truly help and, you know, getting exposed to these things also, um, act as reminders for us. So I think this is a good start to a very much bigger conversation. And thank you for sharing those insights. So now we're going to go into a part where it's a bit more practical. We've covered a lot of the theories, you know, that, that now let's get practical with the practice. Um, and I know that you work with a lot of animals, so you would probably have the perfect practice for this. What is a practice that you do to improve your human animal bonds? Oh, there's so many. Um, <laughs> Well, I, I board dogs and cats in my home and I, I specialize yeah. in special needs, you know, elderly, timid, uh, medical issue. Um, and, and, and I keep my, my, my behavior, uh, and, and animal knowledge sharp by working with many different animals that people have, uh, uh, owned and now need to leave for a period of time for vacation or whatever reason. And, and, and that's been really a lot of fun to have animals around um, that are different, uh, that I can study, uh, that have different personalities. Um, that's one thing I do. Uh, the other is writing my books and I do, do a ton of blogs um, and I do a lot of um, pet magazine articles. Uh, I do a lot of research on for blogs and the articles so that keeps my intellect sharp because a lot of stuff I don't actually know. I need to go look it up. Uh, I need to interview people who know, like you're doing today, that know more about it than I do. Um, I just always try to keep my mind open to learning. I think right now, uh, at this stage of my life, after all these years of working with animals and people, um, I've come full circle and everything that I've learned, uh, every talent I've developed, every passion I've experienced has come into the work I'm doing for Colorado Animal Protectors putting together an educational nonprofit that protects, educates about, and advocates for Colorado animals. I'm in charge of the entire startup, and I'm doing everything related to developing the infrastructure, the board of directors, policies and procedures, financial concerns, fundraising. I've developed the website and the social media, and um, I lead the board on our strategic planning. So. All my business background, my educational background, my humane education background, animal behavior training, uh, my environmental uh, activism, it's all coming together in this one, I call it my denouement, my legacy project. Um, yeah. And, and so, yeah, I, I, I'm staying, I continue to stay very engaged in the animal welfare movement uh, and, and, and different organizations in our state. Yeah. Oh, that sounds wonderful. I think it's uh, very related. It's really related to what you're doing. And I just love that you're keeping that up. Um, but in the context of this practice section, we want it to be also relatable to our audience. Um, so besides all the wonderful work that you're doing, uh, would there be another practice that you would recommend to the everyday people, you know, then this can apply to people who are a little new to, you know, getting this uh, human animal bond, um, or could be for existing pet owner to improve the bond. If, if it's something that's really simple that they can do maybe daily, um, not doesn't have to be a big one, just a baby step even. 
uh, in, with their own personal pet, you mean? If they don't have pet, then maybe something they can try uh, with animals elsewhere, even. Tons, tons of things. Every shelter, yeah. every rescue needs volunteers. Mm. Um, the advantage of that is you learn as you go and you can yeah. develop another career because you're practicing what will eventually become a needed skill. Um, to continually be open to learning. Um, read, 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 read. There's a ton of good materials out there on uh, particularly if you have a, a specific passion. Um, if you want to be a humane educator or if you want to uh, rehabilitate fearful dogs or if you want to be a ground trainer for horses who are afraid of yeah. people. Um, yeah. If you, if you, there's just so many open, I mean, if there were so many things in college that when I was going to school, there are so many degrees you get nowadays, holy cow, um, I would have been all over it. I wouldn't have been able to make a decision. And, and, and so it's all about learning, seeking the knowledge. So many people are blissfully happy being stupid. And I, I, I just don't understand that myself. The knowledge is out there, especially with the internet, especially with all tremendous amounts of people writing books. Um, and I do prefer books to actually learning online or on, on, on tablets or phones, because I want to have that physical book that, because I'm primarily a nonfiction reader, I read to learn. Uh, then I have that physical classroom sitting on my shelf and I can go back and reread it and learn more things. Uh, or when something strikes me, I think, what book did I see that in? I need to go look that up. It's there. I can go look it up. I didn't return it to the library. I bought it. It's on my shelf. Um, but mainly, as far as animal, the human-animal bond, if you're going to invest in animals, as far as emotionally, you don't have to physically invest. Uh, you don't have to financially invest. That's where fostering comes in and volunteering because the animal shelter or rescue covers the bills. They just need the bodies there to work with the animals. If you do take on a pet, then it's your responsibility to make sure that you have the funds to take good care of that pet, which means any current or future veterinary cost, and some of them can be pretty high. And my little dog, as a matter of fact, is 15, and he just had bilateral cataract surgery which wasn't cheap, but I'll tell you, I got his personality back because he was deaf. As he lost his sight, he became very withdrawn and his little personality went away. And so um, it it came back when he got his eyesight back Aww. and it was worth every penny. And people said, oh, he's 15. You want to spend that kind of money on a dog that age? And it's like, yeah, <laughs> it's worth every day seeing him read a hand signal, see me across yeah. the yard running with his tail wagging. So, so there's a lot to owning an animal and you have to be able to um, predict the costs that will be involved in that and the responsibilities and the decision-making. One of the worst possible things that could happen is to have something medically go wrong with your pet and not be able to pay to have it fixed. Yeah. And, and that's just heart crushing. Um, so you've got, before you take something on, do the research. Once you do take something on, find out what that pet needs. Every animal has needs. They need good food. They need companionship. They need a healthy, clean environment. They need shelter. They need love. They need exercise. Different animals need different exercises. I mean, if you get a hamster, you're not going to take it for a walk, but you need a hamster wheel. Um, 
and and everything from fish on up need uh, enrichment. And you can train a fish, you can train a dog, you can train a horse. There, it's amazing the intelligence that we are beginning to discover in these animals, and to give them the enrichment of using their brain as well as their body is very, very important. I talk a lot about this in my book, um, Do City Dog Walking Safety and Etiquette. You know, people look at that book and they think, I don't need a book on dog walking. I already know how to walk my dog. You put a leash on it and you go out the door. But actually there's a lot more to it. And especially understanding the dog's uh, cognitive and emotional needs. There's a chapter in there called, um, uh, that I talk a lot about uh, seeking behavior. And people put a leash on their dogs, it's six feet long, they go out and they walk on a sidewalk and they expect the dog to be happy with that. You know, dogs are not naturally straight line walkers. You put a flexi leash of 20 feet or something on them and they're zigzagging all over the place, smelling this and peeing on that. And that's dog behavior. So is your dog walk for you because you wanna get aerobic exercise or is it for your dog to actually be fulfilled and to experience that enrichment that all animals need. So you need yeah. to study what your animal needs. You need to study how you can do that for your animal. Um, and, and, and there are tons and tons and tons of books that will teach you that. There's, there's podcasts, there's, the knowledge is out there, especially with the internet. And there's yeah. no means to be ignorant on anything. Yeah. Again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think you recommended a few different practices there and it applies to different levels. So say if you don't know anything about the human animal bonds and you would like to get to know more then reading is the first thing you try. I really like that. So it's just educating yourself first um, mm -hmm. and then volunteering when you feel like you're ready, because I feel like a lot of uh, people, myself included, prior to having pets, I was kind of like hesitant to be close to animal because I didn't understand how they work and, you know, how we can interact with them. Um, but after doing a lot of research, I was like, okay, now I'm ready. Like I would like to pet some cats. Uh, so I think, you know, like after the stage of learning, there will be the stage of practicing it by actually volunteering and being close to these animals um, and then fostering and then actually adopting and, you know, having pets, like you said, so many different practices we can try. So that depends on the, you know, the, the level of human animal bond that you currently have, I would say. And normally we recommend one practice, but I think for this particular podcast, it's actually good to recommend several because, you know, not everyone has a pet, not everyone can have access to um, the funds that, that allow them to have pets, even if they want to. So there are multiple other ways they can try and go about it. And I think that's a really nice thing about life. Because, yeah, there are animals that need the care. And even if you, you feel like you cannot afford it, there are ways that you can still do that. And I think that's a really nice thing that we can always remember. Um, so in terms of these practices, um, normally we ask several questions about the practice. But I think uh, for, for this particular podcast, let's focus on the impact because we're talking about well-being. Um, and we touched on this uh, a little bit before, but um, let's round it out by um, a question related to the practice versus our well-being and perception in life. So how do you think doing all these practices, so depending on the levels, right, a, a person can try one practice or they can try several practices. At the end of the day, it's to improve the bond that we have with animals. What would these practices do for our well-being and perception in life? 
personally, um, my work is my life meaning. Um, I can't, personally, I can't face retirement. I, I to, to sit around waking up each morning with no goals and sit around doing nothing or planning for something in the future like a trip. I couldn't do that. I, I need to have an outlet for my talents and my knowledge and my passions. And especially now, I like to reach back and help younger people coming up the ladder of animal welfare work to teach them what I've learned, uh, which my, my book, Beyond Flight or Flight, about fearful dogs, when I was working with these dogs, there was nothing out there. It was about, all the books were about dog training. And training is not the be all and end all for a fearful dog. A fearful dog needs relationship and they need to be able to trust. And you can't have a relationship without trust. I don't care what species you are. And the trust factor for all species, the feeling of safety, uh, the feeling of attachment and trusting, you know, one or two or a herd or a pack, whatever, um, that's was so important. And so when I wrote my book, it's all about how to have a relationship with a fearful dog. But this book would apply to fearful horses, fearful cats, fearful people. Um, I have teachers using it, which with middle grade students uh, and and high school students. Um, but the main thing is to be able to contribute. For me, um, I I I think that if I didn't have an outlet for contribution uh, or an outlet for using all the years of knowledge I've accumulated, and to have a goal to accumulate more knowledge and then to be able to use it. For me, that's this whole this whole body of work gives my life meaning. Yeah. If I got tomorrow, yeah. I'd have to say there isn't anything I've missed. And I'm proud of yeah. what I've accomplished. Yeah. I love that to you, it's not a practice per se, but it's your life's work. You know, there's there's so much that goes into it. You know, it's not one practice or several practices that help you to improve this bond, but it's kind of like it's there. It's what you're doing for for both yourself and for other people and for human animals um especially for the, for these animals that you're saving and you're educating other people about but what about for those that would like to try the practices that you recommended because not everyone would be having the same expertise right so let's just say i'm a very normal person i'm going to try to improve this human animal bond that i don't have yet and i want to try by you know reading up on it i'm going to try by volunteering fostering animals how would this change my life how would this change my well-being well i think every person has a calling uh, every person has a passion. They just need to find out what it is. And it's going to be the same structurally for, for whatever passion you choose to pursue. And if you're anything like me, I've had probably 25 or 30 passions in my life that I've gone after that can be coexisting with my passion for animals. Um, but I just think that that finding your own passion is the key, which will just naturally give structure to your day. It, it, you can't, did, I can't dictate my way of life for anybody else, but I just find that once you open that door and begin to search for the knowledge, and you got to remember everybody, me, you, Einstein, Franklin, um, these are uh, American, you know, heroes. Uh, everybody started off as a kid that didn't know anything. And you have to, you gather knowledge 
And as you go through life, something else grabs your interest. Do you want to learn about that? You got to start somewhere. Just go for it. And I had a nephew once ask me, um, well, how many jobs have you had in your life? He was just starting off in life and he was very insecure. And I said, oh my gosh. I said, Joy, I've had more. I've been fired for more jobs than most people ever have. He goes, you've been fired because he sees me as the rich, successful I am, right? And he says, you've been fired? And I said, yes, many, many, many times. Well, why? Well, for a number of reasons. Number one, a lot of times I knew more than the boss and that was a little intimidating for them. Number two, you know, I didn't know what I liked and I tried something and I stunk at it. So I got fired. Uh, another thing is I didn't know enough or I went into something prematurely and I needed to do more preparation. Uh, there's any number of reasons, but I said, do not be afraid to fail because if you don't fail, you're not learning. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I guess what I'm taking from that answer is maybe this is a way of exploring new new passions for those that would like to improve this um, human animal bond because you know you don't know until you've tried um, but I think from the conversation and the insights you shared earlier I think it would help to unlock new new traits that you didn't know you have or just nurture you know positive characteristic traits because I remember you said earlier that there are all these you know positive characteristic traits that would be improved once you start to nurture that human animal bond so it's so much more than learning about something new um, I really like that you immediately go to the passion part because you're so passionate about this area uh, but I think in in the sense of our well-being there are little things that will be improved as well once we work on this human animal bond um, especially for those who are completely new to it um, if, especially for me when I look back on my journey uh, being a pet parent I was like I've changed so much, you know, yeah. I've become so much more patient. I know that I love animals. Um, I started to, you know, read up more on animals and um, I think about animal welfare more often. Um, so it, it puts things into perspective when it comes to life. And I think this would help a lot of other people as well. Well, and in addition, if you are passionate or think you are and want to just explore more about human animal relationships, Volunteering is certainly the starting point. Um, and and the thing you'll find with anyone, and I don't care what country, what part of the world you live in, when you find someone who shares that passion, that love for animals, and you want to get involved in working with them and learning about them, you will never find a more accepting, warm, gracious group of people. And when I first first started volunteering at the shelter, uh, there were people with pink and purple hair. There were people that dressed weird. There were people um, with gray hair walking on walkers. I mean, every single kind of person you can imagine was in one place and they were all bonded by one thing. And that was their passion for animals. You'll find yeah. that in all professions, but you really, really find it in the animal welfare world. And you find Absolutely. hope. You find a lot yeah. of hope a lot of happiness and a lot of fulfillment in everyone around you and everyone will welcome you and teach you and and help you help who you all love which are animals yeah absolutely 
Well, thank you so much for that. That's so enlightening. And I love that this uh, practice section has become about a passion and unlocking new passions. This is very different because normally we talk about micro things we can do, but I think this is a much bigger one. Um, and yeah, it, it brings some fresh air to this show. Thank you for that. And the final section of this conversation would be open mic. And as I mentioned to you earlier, before we started, this is all about you and your passion. I know that you're passionate about many things besides animal welfare. Um, so this is your chance to talk about something else that you're passionate about or if you would like to continue talking about animal welfare also go for it I have a real uh, another real passion uh, for kids um, and kids growing up during COVID all the violence in the world uh, it, it just tears me apart when I was a kid I'd get on my bike and my parents wouldn't see me all day I would be gone I'd get on my horse and I'd be riding through farmlands and all you had to do was be sure you closed the gate behind you when you went through a farmer's field uh there it was safe it was it was a wonderful way to grow up um with your animal at your side or you're sitting on your animal and you're going through nature but it's not like that for a lot of kids nowadays so what i became really focused on was trying where does the violence start where does the unhappiness start and, it, and, and as a humane educator, working with the animal cruelty investigators at our local shelter, I found that it's often the middle grade years, um, fourth through high school, fourth grade through high school, that's the United States. That would be like, you know, the ages of 12 and up, maybe even eight, seven, eight. But normally it's the middle grade preteen years where kids who are suffering violence at home will turn to animal abuse. Every single school shooter, every single mass murderer has always started abusing animals. And so how do we go back and spot that and, and intervene when it's young and it's new and that thrill of killing or hurting hasn't completely developed yet? So I wrote my three children's books. They're part of the Pups and Purrs Children's Humane Education Series. And each one of them are stories about individual dogs. And each dog narrates his own story. So I call it first paw instead of first person. And it hopefully will help children see the world through the dog's eyes. And, and to learn that animals are sentient, intelligent, thinking, feeling beings that need to be, they're not a couch, they're not a car, you can't just go, you know, hurt them and not have them suffer. And also the dogs in the stories go through what children do. They go through rejection, bullying, search for self. And in every one of the books, there are themes and messages and lessons to be learned through an engaging story. And they are beginning chapter books. So they have illustrations and print. I also wanted to uh, appeal to boy readers because boys um, are, are not as big a readers as girls generally at that age. So um, I've got one book that's specifically, you know, geared towards boys, but also children with learning disabilities like ADHD, like I had as a kid and, and probably still do, um, but also dyslexia. So the print is large. There's not a lot of copy on a page. So that when they're transitioning from picture books into chapter books, this is a transitional type of reading style. And, and so these three books tell these stories about the dogs and by the dogs, because I think reading stories by an animal 
are far more engaging than reading stories about animals. And there's a lot of other animals in the stories besides, and it's about relationship and family and finding yourself and your place in the world as you grow up. So that, what I've done here is I, I've tried to curtail um, the advent of animal abuse through humane education and to intervene while it's still possible before it escalates to violence against human humans. In the United States, there's, a, there's an organization that uh, we're a partner in, and it's called The Link. And it's the link between animal abuse and the escalation to violence against people. And that's a huge, huge, again, passion <laughs> for me is to educate um, because animals are such a big part of that scheme. Yeah, absolutely. It sounds like all your passions intertwine because know. you know you, you said this is another fashion of you, this is about children, but it's also related to this animals and animal welfare. And I right. really love that. So thank you so much for coming on and sharing your expertise, your experience, your stories. Um, I think it's been a really good conversation. There's a lot of new information that we need to digest. Um, I'm hoping that you've had a good time. And before we let you go, if our audience would like to find out more about your work, how can they do that? You can go to my website, which is www.sunnyweber.com. Uh, I'm also on LinkedIn. You can check my background experiences on LinkedIn. Um, and, and you can certainly email me at sunny at sunnyweber.com anytime. If you have behavior questions, I do have a behavior business as well, where I help people solve issues with their pets in their homes so those pets can stay in their homes and not get relinquished to the shelter system again. Um, but anything that comes to mind that you'd like answers on, I can recommend some wonderful books, um, and besides mine, and um, and anything that's related to animals. If you're in a in an area where there is not a lot of resources for animals, I can hook you up with people that have started tons and tons of different veterinary uh, organizations or behavior organizations or almost like book clubs where people have dog clubs or cat clubs and and uh, and it's a lot of friends so any anything you need that you need help with to understand animals or become involved with animals you just let me know yeah absolutely we will and i think your dog is in the background a little bit isn't he well, he's wandering around here somewhere yeah did you see yeah <laughs> no i just i just heard something i saw the 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 plant or the yeah something in the background oh. was kind of like ruffling i was like oh there it's, you go <laughs> special it's, feature it's dinner time <laughs> yeah <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, well, wonderful. Well, that's the perfect end to this podcast because, you yes. know, we have the special feature from your doggo. Um, so thank you so much for being here once again. I'm sure thank our audience you. will reach out to you if they have any questions. It's been a really good topic. Uh, lots to learn, lots to think about. And um, hopefully we'll have you back some other time. Oh, I'd love to. I've got tons of things I can talk to you about. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you do. Thank you so much. Enjoy thank your you. evening. This is really wonderful. I really appreciate it. And anything we can do to help the world's animals, I really appreciate Chime. Yeah, absolutely. You've been listening to Doing Well, the Wellbeing Science Insights podcast produced by the Wellbeing Science Labs, a division of LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. More episodes are available from 10 Life Management Perspectives and can be found by searching LMSL on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, 
Spotify, YouTube, and other podcasting apps available on your devices. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, share, and subscribe to our channel so that other people can find it and we can continue to provide quality content. More of our work can be found on our website at we.lmsl.net, where you can join our movement. I'm Lu Ngo. Thanks for tuning in.